Hey everybody, welcome to the Bike Portland Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Moss. Before we get started with this episode, I want to remind everybody what the heck is going on here. Bike Portland is community-supported media. We are not a nonprofit. This is a private company, and our product is to create information that informs and inspires the community. Uh, if you've been around Bike Portland, you know we don't have a lot of advertising from businesses, and we don't run a bunch of really any third-party annoying flashing banners and ads from Google and those sort of folks. Instead, I rely on support from people like you, people who listen to the podcast, people who watch our videos on social media, who enjoy our content every day, love reading the stories that we do, people who love going to happy hour, all that sort of thing. So if that's you and you're not yet a paid subscriber, I would really love to have your support. You can find out how to support Bike Portland either through a paid monthly subscription or a one-time contribution, whatever you'd like, uh, at bikeportland.org support. Please step up and become a supporter today. Tell your friends to join you. And don't forget that this is community journalism. That means it needs community to survive. That means it needs you. Thank you. In this episode, I'll share an interview that I just wrapped up with Portland City Council candidate Jesse Coronet. Jesse is running for Council District 3, that is Southeast Portland, roughly from the Willamette River, uh, I-84 in the north, about 82nd Avenue to the east, and then down to the southern border. If Jesse's name sounds familiar, that's because he's run for office in Oregon two other times, once in 2008 for a seat on the state Senate, which he narrowly lost, and then once in 2010 when he ran for Portland City Council. Since then, he's done several interesting things, a lot of them in the political world, uh, but let's get right into the conversation so you can hear from Jesse himself just what kind of person he is, what he believes in, and why he thinks he should be one of your next Portland City Council members. Here's our conversation. Jesse Cornett, thanks for coming into the shed. Excited to be here. Especially on a day like this with this just really wild weather we're having. Do you have any deep freeze experiences that you want to share as we get started here? Deep freeze experiences, no. I've been really fortunate. I've been spared. We haven't lost power. We've put people up. We've let another friend whose pipes first use our shower a couple times. But for me, the worst has been that I've missed being able to go to yoga mm. because it's been closed. So I'm doing really good in this. Good. Well, it's pretty rare that I get to interview someone for local elected office twice over the span of like 14 years because I sat down with Jesse back in 2010. When he's running for, running for council. By way of sort of introducing yourself a little bit, how has Jesse Cornett changed since 2010? Like, tell me what you've been up to in the last 14 years. Well, I've grown up, um, for better or worse. Uh, in 2010, I ran. I ran for the state senate in uh, 2006. Came very close to winning. <laughs> buoyed by that in 2010. Needing a job, I decided to run for city council against an entrenched, entrenched incumbent, Dan Salzman, who's actually endorsed me for this race, which is really neat. I think what's different then and now, back then, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what I was supposed to say that would get me votes in 20. 24. I know what I think, and that's what I keep saying over and over again. And people seem to like it, which is really neat. Fortunately, I don't think that I will craft the way that I say anything in order to get a vote. And maybe that makes me a crappy politician, but we'll see. 
Can you help us understand like what some of the work that you've done since since 2010? I've done an awful lot of work since 2010. A majority of those years have been working full-time in the political realm. I worked for both Bernie Sanders' presidential campaigns, including being the personal assistant during the second campaign. I did a variety of, of other projects, including getting healthcare funding for 55,000 Oregonians who would otherwise be eligible, but for their immigration status. So these are migrant farm workers and such. I, I lost badly when I ran in 2010. I've joked, and I also got more votes than I deserved. But the, the reality is that as this city has changed and as I've matured, I never thought that I would run for office again. And here's why I'm running. One of the things I got to do with Senator Sanders, even prior to having that particular role, was go to Homestead Child Detention Center with him and watch where, as a nation, we're actually caging kids. That's uh, we the people. That's us that's doing that. And even though that's not something that's ever going to happen on the municipal level, for me, seeing that we're electing people who are allowing that. That's not okay. Fast forward, I think the other reason that I'm truly running is I walk around a lot. And actually, one of the things that I like to do as well is just turn my phone off when I'm going for those walks or sometimes for a whole day or a weekend. And when you walk around this city and you're not staring at a screen, I don't know how you don't cry in seeing what's happening with, with our city. Folks are hurting in our city. Then I started looking around, and even though early on I, I would say specific names, I look around at folks in leadership, both at the federal level and here within our city, and I really realized that, wow, I would have to have a really poor opinion of myself if I didn't think I could do a better job than those guys. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's kind of your animating principle, if you will, for, for wanting to get back into a role like this is the, the folks that you're seeing on the street in Portland right now, that, that acute crisis is the thing that's really driving you and, and the sense that you think that current leadership hasn't really done done the, the right things. Correct. I've also spent the last three years deeply engaged with a recovery nonprofit, Oregon Recovers, and serve on their board. Between homelessness and addiction, I think that we have to do better as a community in helping those in need. I am aware of my my white privilege, my ability to stand up and speak. And I got to see something in Bernie Sanders that you had to pay really close attention to that there was never a story about because nobody paid that close attention. But we could be in a room packed with 500 people, all of whom having their hands outstretched, just wanting to get their handshake. And he would see somebody like Jonathan and Jesse standing there super excited. One of us is holding a phone. We're going to get our selfie. And he would brush right past us because he saw somebody 30 feet away in a wheelchair that couldn't get to him. That's who he wanted to represent. That's who I want to represent. Certainly, I will represent everyone and proudly. But I want to use my privilege as a voice for those in our community that need it the most. Do you see some intersections between these, what you call on your on your website, these triple crises of, of homelessness, addiction, and mental health? Do you see some intersection between those issues and how people get around in transportation and the state of our streets? Yes, absolutely. These are affecting everyone. My partner walks around Southeast Port. I walk around Southeast Port. We walk the dog. She walks the dog multiple times a day. I try to go with her multiple times a week, sometimes twice in a day if I'm really lucky. And Pathways are blocked. It's it's not just streets, it's bike lanes, or not just sidewalks, it's bike lanes. And 
I am really very compassionate to the person that is sleeping in that tent and needs something better in life. But I also think the person that needs to get safely past that, especially let's go back to the person in a wheelchair that I mentioned. Folks are crossing streets and putting in a lot of effort to be able to get safe passageway. So it impacts society in a, in a meaningful way beyond those suffering in the tent. I mean, to that issue in particular, I'm sure you're aware there was a lawsuit from folks that, that you know, from pe- people who are disabled saying they couldn't pass on sidewalks. And I've heard from numerous people in the last several years about not feeling safe on paths and stuff like that when there's people living with tents right there on the path, sometimes blocking it, whatever. As an elected official that has the concerns that you do and, and wants to elevate and speak up for people that are vulnerable, how would you lead around that issue? How do you balance that need for people to move themselves through the city, right, on, on safe transportation corridors and feel safe doing it with the fact that people are sleeping in those places. How do you balance that? What do you think is a good tone or, or something to tell the public that's coming to you and saying, do something about this? I think for the public and doing something about this, it's starting with the reality that there are two sides that are struggling as a result of that issue. I think societally, something that that I've talked about on my, I think it's on my website as well, the importance of building more affordable housing. The, if you look at the cause of homeless in America, it's lack of affordable housing. If addiction were a cause of homelessness, West Virginia would not exist. It would be just one big homeless camp. If it were poverty, same thing with Detroit. It's, those aren't the causes. The cause is lack of affordable housing. So as a society, one thing that I think that people may struggle with my candidacy and as a prospective elected official, and I don't want to fully pivot over to policing, which is something I've talked an awful lot about, but community policing is a good example. We need a 20-year plan to get back Mm -hmm. um, to where we should be with policing. In terms of housing and eliminating the problem, we have to do something about the person that's using a curb as a pillow tonight. But we also need a strategy so in 20 years from now, there's not new people falling into that. And that's going to take pretty broad community support. And it's going to require patience that policymakers no longer deserve but need. Okay. You, you touched on a few things there I want to get into, but let, let's zero back in on District 3. The, okay. the district that you're in, inner southeast. Can you explain to folks what the boundaries are? I could try, but I'd, I'd fumble. So, and I assume you have a better answer. So, orient us around District Three, if you could. Sure, Willamette River and 84 okay. goes down, excludes Selwood and East, and Selwood and Moreland goes all the way out to 82nd along the Clackamas County Portland border there. Takes 82nd up to Powell, then it jogs out to 205, goes all the way up to Maywood Park, then it takes in some neighborhoods north of 84 until you get back down to 47th. Then the line is 84 back down to the river. All right. That is a good, that's a good uh, description of the district. It's not my first time. Had you asked me that two months ago, I wouldn't have been able to give it as cogent as that. I just now figured out like what they basically are like on a map, the one, two, three, four. So I'm feeling pretty good just about that. But that district is Last time I talked in 2010, that had some of the highest rates of bicycle use anywhere in the country, That the district that you're running for. I'm just curious, do you think about transportation in your district? What are some of the things that, that come up for you? What do you think are some of the, the key streets or the key pieces of infrastructure that come to mind for you? I mean, I for a long time lived out in Lentz, was the chair of the Lentz Neighborhood Association, and would teach downtown. And so I would get up and and cruise down Foster and over and all the way down Clinton, which has made tremendous improvements since 
I don't know when last I did that, probably 2015, but just understanding the importance of some of those bike routes that have continued to be improved. You look at 39th Avenue, traffic goes way too fast out there. I know you well covered the the, the death of, of Jeannie Diaz, I believe was the name, unfortunately. I took the transportation class at Portland, the citizen transportation class at Portland State offered back in the day. One of the one of the days we talked about 39th and Hawthorne, the Fred Meyer there. 36 inches, I think the the sidewalk is there. It's the most narrow sidewalk in the city, and there's absolutely no protection from cars. It can go very fast. So I think we've made some great strides in terms of inf- infrastructure. I mean, from Ankeny on, there's just there's a lot of experiences I've had there, and it's nice to see we've continued to improve. And I think it's continual. Do you think that um, it's it's reasonable or or wise to consider reducing the amount of space? to drive a car in your district if we're talking about like let's say we we're trying to make protection for sidewalks i personally think protected sidewalks should be something people talk about more we usually talk about protected bike lanes but as we saw with the death of Jeannie diaz if that was a protected sidewalk she might still be alive i'm just curious where you would come down on a decision where the question was about reducing space for driving maybe an entire lane for driving or putting in some kind of bike lane or, or even a protection for a sidewalk. Because often it does come down to that, especially on a street like Cesar Chavez, where the city of Portland is very, very uh, careful to not reduce the amount, like the, the car volume on there, because it's really one of the only major north-south arteries through that area. So say if you're on council and, and you're a part of some transportation caucus or that's an issue that comes up, are you willing to entertain the idea of reducing space for driving so that we can put other things in its place? Yes. I could, I, I'm not going to just stop there. I was being a little cheeky, but no, absolutely. I think to the extent that we find opportunities to reduce lanes, we absolutely should. And we also need to focus on speed limits more and more in, in Portland. One thing that I've said, I've never said this. I don't know if I've said this to anyone other than my, my partner. So perhaps bold mentioning it here for the first time. 31st Avenue is shut down right now north of Hawthorne for a block for construction. And I've long had this perspective seeing this all around inner Southeast Portland where we're building these condos. We're shutting down entire blocks for months, years in some cases. It's been well over a year this block has been closed. I think we've proven as a city we don't need that block. Let's start shutting down some of those blocks and making community spaces out of them. I like that idea. What people would say if you if you were to do that would be, well, then all, all that all that traffic's going to come over to my street or some other street like how how can you say that if, if it's just going to create all this diversion like what what, what would, how would you respond to people that say that i think if that were a, a primary concern of theirs you would have imagined they would have been saying something over the past year and a half while this street was shut so somebody could make a profit selling condos that's okay but keeping it shut for community use is not okay no i think it is okay and I forgot to ask you this at the top, but I've asked almost everybody that I've interviewed for the last, I don't know how long, how do you personally define your transportation relationship to mobility? Like, how do you get around? Have you always been a bus rider, a car driver, everything? Like, tell me something about that. Multimodal, if that's even the right way to say it. I drive fairly regularly. And so I have that experience. Secondary, I walk. I have a bike and I use it more for recreation than transportation. And it also has been transportation, but I enjoy going out and just hopping on it on a Saturday morning and going out for some random 20 mile loop. Cool. Cool. Where do you like to ride? Marine drive really. Yeah. It's kind of the big one for me. 
Okay. So I find myself getting st- stuck in a rut, going out spring water, looping, crossing down those <laughs> shitty streets. What is it? 181st down to Marine Drive and looping and coming back in. All right. So. We, we can talk about routes because maybe I can give you some tips on how to not have it be so bad. I like loops. Okay. And I'm a creature of habit. I hear you. So, okay, gosh, like I said, there's so much I want to talk about because I'm a huge like political junkie and I know you have a lot of political experience, but there's also some issues that are sort of more, I think, germane to what people might be expecting. So let's, you mentioned a little bit about community policing. Yes. Let's jump into policing a little bit. It's an issue that actually comes up a lot, obviously in transportation, some, some ways obvious, some ways not so much. Um, I think it's interesting for folks to know that you actually wanted to be a police officer at one point, went through some training. It just it didn't end up working out. Well, I actually, I did go through the police academy um, in 1998. I spent three years as a reserve deputy sheriff for the county. Um, the reserve programs, you've got the badge, the gun, the car. You're out there enforcing laws. We got to initiate traffic stops and do a handful of, of, of things. I actually pulled somebody over that blew 0.24 that year wow. or one of those years. So had an interesting experience doing that. As the other side of this, when we talk about policing, I always point out that in late 2005, my closest friend was shot in the back by a Portland police officer um, that was on my back porch. Um, so so I, 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 I do bring, a, I think, a bit of depth on policing issues that matter in this race. And I'll just add, I've... I've joked public policy by rhyme should be a crime, but it's not real serious because 20 is plenty and other things like that are certainly great. But the point behind the messaging is simply that what we do is we find these very quick things and we don't really get into the depth of them. So defund the police is where I is the lead up where I want to ask the question of of what are we doing with the folks with the badges and the guns? Maybe we should break off some of those other duties. And then we need to get officers that are from this community, Mm -hmm. which I can talk about in great depth. Yeah. So based on what you just said and what I've heard you say before, you're definitely a police reform person. You want to make sort of the existing system work a lot better is kind of how I understand your general thing. And I hear you as more of a reform person, but I wonder, we have a a Portland Police Bureau where we have the, the top traffic officer hold a press conference to tell Portlanders that, that police were not going to stop them for traffic violations. And then he later admitted to me that he was basically trying to gin up support, political support, to get more funding from City Hall. So I heard that as basically the police being willing to make the community less safe in order to play politics to get more funding. And I'm just curious how that lands for you. If you were on council, would you have put out a statement about that? Would you have addressed that in some way? Does does that kind of behavior concern you? Well, yes, it concerns me that the person, the people that we're hiring to be the enforcers of law are able to be actively dishonest with no regard. And I think that's unsafe and it, it sends a message. I think that the lowering the emphasis on traffic infractions has had an impact. And I don't have the numbers. You have the numbers on transportation deaths. And I would expect that we've seen an uptick. And there are many reasons. And the lack of enforcement is is certainly one of them. In political science, it's the Washington Monument strategy. I'm not sure if you referred to that. The In the federal level, if you go out and you tell agencies, if Congress tells agencies, well, we're going to have a 10% budget cut this year, the first thing the Park Service comes has come back with is, well, we clearly can't afford to keep the Washington Monument open. Everyone's coming to Washington, D.C., and they want to do these big, flashy tourist attractions. It gets out the Washington Monument might be closed. 
everyone goes to their members of Congress up in arms. Suddenly, there's not a 10% budget cut. It's a, it's a, it's a tired strategy. And so you mentioned, you mentioned community policing. I see on your, on your Instagram, you have selfies with Tom Potter, who former, he was, yeah, he was in charge of police, right? Yeah, he, 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 he ushered community up. policing in right, Portland. Right, yeah, right. I knew there was something there with former Mayor Potter. So I mentioned Tom Potter and kind of community policing because I just wonder, it sounds like you're someone who would be a fan of having more civilian, so non-badge holding, non-gun carrying, some kind of civilian force, maybe doing more of the of the things that currently we have sworn officers doing. Is that something that you're in support of? Do you think that's a good uh, way to go? We We need sworn officers to do a lot of dangerous things in our community. And we have a whole lot of things that they have become responsible for. They are the first responders to Portland's mental health crisis. That wasn't their training. That wasn't why they got into the job. And where we might be able to bolster traffic enforcement a little bit more and respond to safety calls. Since October, any time talking about anything community safety. One thing that I like to mention is I witnessed a a father on one of those Lime-like scooters with one of his kids in tow and holding it with one hand securely and a beer propped on the handle on the other side. And uh, when he crashed, I called 911. And three and a half minutes later, um, somebody had a traumatic head injury. Uh, It took three and a half minutes just to get the call taken. So we need to reprioritize where when somebody's in an emergency, they don't have to sit on the phone for what is that? Two hundred seconds, which feels like twenty minutes. So it's so if if we had officers focusing on different things, maybe like you mm-hmm. mentioned minor traffic violations, and I agree with you. By the way, yes, deaths are way up, which is why I think this is such an important conversation. So maybe if we had officers being able to respond to serious stuff like that, uh, which, which I agree. I just did a story that mentioned some of the crash reconstruction expertise on the police bureau and the lengths that they go to determine what happened, especially if it's a, a fatality. I think those are really important things that you could have trained police officers doing. But what about some of those minor issues? Like, let's say even license plate tags or something like, would you would you support a new level of PBOT service officer that can go out and issue citations? Was that something that you would support? Likely talking about actually physically, like a well, it's an, it's a, it's a, it's something that's actually got a lot of research behind it. There's there, there's people say they're in support of this. Current counselors have said that they're in support of this, but we just haven't seemed to really take any steps on it. Broken headlights or taillights. If 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 someone was to see a car without the right license plate or tag, and they were part of this civilian service corps or whatever, they could actually issue a citation that someone would have to pay a fine. In general, getting more civilians to do some of the work, the traffic enforcement work that police do now, is that something that you feel is like ready to move and something that you would prioritize or make make some headway on? Having a data-informed approach. And the one thing that I would just want to do a good survey of before a yes vote on that is seeing if there have been any instances of um, violence or unsafety because somebody is initiating those stops without a firearm. Expired tags, lights being out. No, there's no reason you need a a 40 caliber pistol in order to have a conversation about enforcing that law. One of the big reasons why so many people are dying on, on Portland streets are related to crimes. Actually, if you look at the data this last year with the 75 deaths, there's about half of them, I think, are there's a crime involved. If not more, I haven't done the final number crunching on that. So there's definitely a nexus here between what we allow people to do on the street or whether or not people think there'll be enforcement or consequences for their actions 
and actually saving lives. But I wonder with you, some of the high crash corridors certainly run through District 3. And I wonder when you think about traffic safety, you think about your district, and you think about those bigger streets, such as where a lot of people are dying, do you, can you think of anything that, that you would think is like a solution or how you might approach making those streets safer? Slowing down the traffic. The last time I worked for a legislator, it was Jackie Dingfelder, and I helped her pass a bill that increased the fine for a cell phone while driving and uh, using your cell phone while driving. I, this is not going to be uh, a surprise to you or literally anyone else that listens to your show, but the vast majority of time, especially when I was a bike commuter, when there would be a close call with a car, just look. Their attention is on a gadget, and I don't know what it's going to take to deprioritize texting and driving, and that doesn't just impact my district, but everywhere. But on streets such as Powell, it's getting, it's getting the speed slower, and it's making safety improvements where you know you need them and where you discover you need them. I drive past 26th and Powell several times, a week. The the death there was that last year, the year before was you know, a cook at, at one of my favorite restaurants. Not mm. somebody that I know, but obviously very sad and uh, impact people in my world. So I think that's what we need to do. And then also we, we just don't need state ownership and city limits of, of any streets. We need people that are here and responsive to people here, not Salem. And I've never seen a move to shift Powell to from the state to city. It is still state ownership, isn't it? Yeah, there's been some there's been some talk about that. We're just going to wait until it's 82nd and yeah. the maintenance is so bad. States happy to get rid of it, but until then. But then it's going to take a lot of money and a huge push from advocates to make happen instead of just being uh, like a matter of course, which a lot of these things do, unfortunately. I mean, like 82nd only happened because two people got killed within two weeks at the same intersection. I mean, even in your district, a lot of the stuff, actually citywide, a lot of the safety initiatives and projects happen because someone gets seriously hurt or killed, and it leads to a huge response from activists. And while I appreciate that we make progress on things, it's just kind of, it's really sad that we wait until these things happen before electeds really engage on these street safety issues. And then year after year, we're seeing record deaths, and it's like, well, of course. It's not an issue until until it becomes political for, for some people on council. I don't, I don't understand that. I just wonder if you have any ideas on how to be a little more proactive in, in making streets safe instead of paying with blood of citizens before something happens. Sure. Also, when I worked for Jackie Dingfeld, there's somebody who was killed in Montevilla, and uh, was that Gle- it was on Gleason, and we uh, we added the enhanced crosswalk there. My the the particular name of the flashing beacon there, the is, rapid uh, flashing, the, the rapid flashing beacons yeah. on the on the crosswalks, measuring where folks are going and putting them there. I think just just simple measures like that. I actually uh, I'm going to admit I'm like smiling. I was like, do I say this? I admit the last time that I got a, any kind of a a moving violation. I was on my bike, and I blew a stop sign, and uh, I was assigned to go to to traffic school if I wanted to get out of the tickets, and so I did, (laughs) and I found it fascinating, Hmm. and I think I knew it at this point, um, but something I remember them saying, uh, and that is that anywhere there's the, the, the wheelchair ramp, it's a legal crosswalk. And not a lot of people know that. So I think there's a lot of awareness mm. on small things like that that, uh, that need to happen. I haven't looked at any traffic safety courses for, for new drivers, uh, but making sure information like that is included, I think, is important. And, uh, and I think uh, simply adding paint because people just don't get it can also be helpful. My personal plug is to, is I wish at the state level we had like a scared straight video you had to watch 
at certain intervals to get your driver's light renewal and stuff like that. Because I'm scared straight because I'm around it all the time in my line of work, but it's it causes me to be extremely, extremely careful whenever I'm in a car. And I just wish that everybody had that same level of fear and understanding of consequences. Yep. Well, the lack of consequences, and this is something I'm going to sound political. We had a president of the United States for four years that during that time and since has proven that turns out a lot of the rules we have in society um, are arbitrary. And I think as a society, people have learned lessons from that uh, combined when you get a cop that gets out there and says this isn't going to be enforced. That's we're being plagued by that. Yeah, I think that's arguably one of the big problems that's creating unsafe streets right now is the general. And I'm liking that it's being talked about more. I mean, even Commissioner Maps, who I don't, Commissioner Mingus Maps, who's currently in charge of, of the Portland Bureau of Transportation, who I'm not exactly thrilled with Commissioner Maps's leadership of the Transportation Bureau, but he has identified traffic culture and driving culture as, as being problematic and being a big factor, which I agree with. Unfortunately, he hasn't come up with any way to shift that. People tend to throw their arms up and say, well, you can't change culture. I don't necessarily agree with that either. I think there are things we could do differently to shift that. But but yeah, you're right. When people don't think there's consequences. I also, you, you helped me sort of segue into politics a little bit because unfortunately, even traffic crashes, what we do on our streets has become, everything is politicized now. I think another contributor to you know the dysfunction we're facing as a city is because I think things have become even more split left and right. And people should know when I say left and right, it's because it's a convenient way to communicate. And I don't, I don't necessarily see the world as having two sides only, but for lack of a better way to like express that there are differences of opinion and and it's sort of a convenient way to talk about it. So uh, I'll try not to use it as much, but I think that split in Portland is becoming probably more acute uh, entering this new election cycle. And so I'm just curious um, if you could share with us how you plan to lead with an electorate that is as divisive as ever or as split as ever. And even with some folks you might be running against or who, who might be on council or even running for mayor who you may have strong disagreements with. How do you lead in this environment right now uh, in Portland? So Portland is almost shades of left by sticking with the same analogy. I am really fortunate. And if you look at who's even given me money so far, there are some names on there that people would think, wow, Homer Williams gave $350 to Bernie Sanders guy. And there are some other names that are maybe less brand names who aren't considered politically liberal, are supporting me despite my personal politics. And that's because I think I've started to prove that I have a particular brand of collaborative politics in terms of, to go back to something that I know this is uh, back on housing and homelessness, but I thought that I was extremely liberal before I started this. And now I get out there and let's look at the issue of housing and homelessness. I think that we've created this scenario in Portland where if you dare to speak nice of somebody living in a tent and and their rights and our responsibilities as a society, the homeowner who they're five feet away from is feeling ignored and as if their concerns aren't valued. Well, for me, that person and their wife, that's probably their major lifetime investment, that house. Do I think that the care of the person in the tent matters? Yes. Do I think the concerns of the homeowner are valid? Absolutely. And it's not one or the other. And I think that helps me bridge a political divide, uh, being that I think that all sides are important. I said somewhere, and I don't really remember where it was, our folks, Renee Gonzalez, 
uh, positions that are far more conservative than mine. And I don't know what we agree on or, or don't agree on. And I've not actually sat down with him. And maybe someday we'll have that conversation. At the end of the day, to the extent that I think that he is wrong about passing out tents, and I don't think that one individual should have that much power within city government. But there are people that agree with him in Portland, and I think they deserve a voice as well. And I think having that perspective helps get at what you're asking about. Do you think it's a accurate assessment to say that the Portland electric electorate has moved a little bit to the center since 2020 and all the all the turmoil that the city's been through? And if you do think that's a fair assessment, like I wonder, has that changed your approach to being an elected official in this town? Yes and no. I do think that the city has become a little jaded and concerned when you look at, and I could talk all day about how homelessness and addiction are different and where they're intertwined. But if you look at issues of homelessness and addiction, people in Portland are just tired. And that is going to move them more on those issues to the center. And if I were here just to get elected to office and no other reason, maybe I would move to the center with them and just say what I think they wanted to hear. But the reality is that I'm going to have the conversation about how that's maybe not the case. The the clear and present one right now for me is Measure 110. I've been deeply involved in things 110. I've been to Portugal to understand their model. And there's a rush to recriminalize right now. I could have that conversation and say, okay, cool, yeah, let's just lock them all up. That's not the right thing to do. And using a data-informed approach, there's actually no data that shows that the criminal justice system is a pipeline to help. That's not the intent of the criminal justice system, and recriminalizing is going to make people that don't need to feel better feel better. So we have those tough conversations. We don't cow to the, uh, we don't chase the political wins. I feel like so much of the backlash to a lot of these initiatives is rooted in people's just distrust of government to some degree. Do you, do you believe that? Or and I've heard you say that democracy isn't just about the will of the people necessarily. We have an elected body that is supposed to set laws and decide on things. And I heard you say that. And I was like, well, he hasn't run for office <laughs> for a while because that's, I mean, people right now are just so angry, right? The mistrust. And I just wonder how will you, what kind of tone can you find to respond and, and, and satisfy people in 2024 that are just not having it, that are just sick and tired of it? You know, whether it's decriminalization of drugs, if it's repealing Measure 110, or if it's people saying we want to vote on tolls, or if it's people saying Vision Zero is a failure because people still die, right? There's all these things where we're seeing people basically just saying they're fed up with government, it seems like. And here you are wanting to step back into government, saying that elected bodies, deliberative bodies are the ones that should be doing these things. How, how do you respond to people that are just so frustrated? With, with four people plus a mayor, we don't have the ability for Portlanders to engage with their government in a meaningful way in this city um, with their elected officials. And we have a neighborhood system which if I'm on city council, I hope to bolster as much as I can. But we're going to do with four districts, three people for each district, we're going to create a scenario where anyone can talk to their elected officials that wants to talk to their elected officials. You don't just get that quick blurb at the start of, mm. of city council meetings. We're going to be out there. We're going to be actively engaging. My phone number is just about everywhere that I can imagine putting it. That number is not going to change when I'm elected. For me, there's, you know, 160-ish thousand people in the uh, in the district. I can't talk to every one of them every day, every month, or even every year. But to the extent somebody wants to engage, I will. I've caught some people off guard during this campaign because I'm not confrontational at all. But 
when somebody will say something on a online and I'll see it or send me a message. One guy said he was going to start writing letters to the editor because I wouldn't engage and I forget what the issue was. So mm-hmm. it was a mm-hmm. it was it was a housing and homelessness issue and uh, I, I didn't I, I I picked up the phone and I called him and uh, immediately as soon as I saw that and that's kind of my approach being accessible and you're not going to please everyone. Um, I was in a situation on Tuesday night where I was with with some folks without roofs over their head and and saw some interactions and there was this reality that struck in and that where like oh that particular person is not operating from i guess i shouldn't have even said the context Uh, i interacted with somebody where i very quickly realized like oh that person doesn't have anything resembling rationality Mm. and they're not going to and there's nothing that i can do in this situation to change that can you engage with that person no but that's a rare person. And um, what you also learn when you're talking to folks, when you do pick up the phone and you call that person, you every person you talk to, you're for better or worse, you're focus grouping. You're not saying anything different, but you're finding a way to say it that helps people understand it. And I think whether it's online or in person or on the phone or email exchanges, my ability to make that connection. And I'll just say as a last thought here, I had somebody respond to an email that I sent out about Measure 110 with a response of, you just don't get it. That was it. That was the summary of the email. That they sent to you? Yes. Okay. They sense have given me the most, a maximum contribution. Because again, I picked up the phone and said, wait a second, what is it you don't think I get? Mm -hmm. And then we talked through it. And uh, it turns out the way that I worded something was imprecise in their mm-hmm. opinion, mm-hmm. but there was very little shade of difference on the issue. So you're, so you're saying good communication, accessibility. Am I hearing you right and saying not, not shutting people out necessarily, but listening to them? I feel like there's a lot of that in Portland where people that don't agree with each other are even unwilling to talk or respect each other. And that just makes it even more difficult, I think, to solve these issues. So that's what, that's what I'm hearing from you is... Everyone wants to be heard, and sooner or later they get tired of talking. There you go. Okay, a few more things here. I did want to. There, there was a reason that I mentioned some of these uh, older faces on your on your Instagram page. Uh, Randy Leonard was another one. Yes, former former commissioner. I it, what it what it made me think of is that I think part of what's going on in Portland right now in politics and with the electorate is because people are frustrated and, and tired and jaded, like you said. There's this feeling uh, of you know, the good old days. And what's fascinating to me about that feeling and about that phrase is that everybody has a different version of what the good old days were to them or what what they feel like were the good old days, right? Whether you're left, right, center, whatever. So I'm just curious, you, Jesse Cornett, like, it, do you think of it in those terms, uh, in terms of, I'm assuming that you want Portland to get better and, and, and to, you know, cure itself of its current ills. What is... What are the good old days to you in Portland? What is What should we be striving for as a city to get back to or to move forward to? What is it? I don't want to get back to anything. Uh, I uh, I had this awareness early on when I very first started talking about doing this in June, July, and I was chatting with folks. And I'll admit, and there's nobody on my website that 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 I'm referencing specifically here. There were, I think, a lot of folks that realized that I might be somebody to get us back to the good old days. Um, and I very quickly realized, well, that's not what I'm here to do. What I am is I'm a bridge to the future that we want to see in this city. And I think that most of the folks that are supporting me are doing so because of a, a sensibility that I have. And it feels weird talking about yourself like this, but I've also been very naturally collaborative for a long, long time. And I think that's something that we're lacking in government today and that some of those 
old school folks see in terms of if we are going to go back in government, we used to have really good collaboration where folks that disagreed would still sit down and hammer folks out without going through the Willamette Week. And uh, I think we can get back to that. But in terms of who we are as a city, we've changed, we've grown, diversity has shifted. I don't want to get us back to anything. I want to help folks that liked it in 1997 to love it in 2027. Okay. I appreciate that. Um, that would have been a great place for me to end because <sighs> that was just the kind of answer that I would typically end on. But I'll kick myself if I don't ask you like uh, just at least one more bike specific question. Okay. You talked about the future. There's a nonprofit in the town called Bike Cloud PDX. Yes. Uh, they're, you know, kind of the scrappy, they don't have a paid staffer yet, the scrappy bike activism group. They're, they've made it their central mission to push Portland to 25% cycling mode share by 2030 which is just the thing that we've already adopted in our, you know, city council's adopted that. It's in our comprehensive plan. So we're only uh, six years out now. I wonder if you think that's a reasonable goal to set for Portland. 25% bicycle mode share. So that means trips made by bike is 25%. Right now it's, well, we don't really know. The census is, the census has turned into such a fiasco. It's not really a great number, but let's say right now it's three to 4%. I don't think it's my job to tell a group of volunteers what's reasonable, but... I'll say, had the U.S. government not set a goal to get a man on the moon within 10 years, we would have absolutely never sent somebody to the moon. You have to have goals that are lofty. If your ridership is at 8% and you get it to 10%, you can take a victory lap and probably raise some money on that. But was that going to happen already? Maybe. So not knowing where the numbers are now, it's hard to know where they would go. But just understanding how the safety of the city is improved by less cars on the road. Who cares if it's unreasonable? Let's go for it. And I can't believe they don't have a staff. They seem to be everywhere. They'll be happy to hear that. <laughs> ha okay, <laughs> let's see. Have you ever heard of the Lads 500? I've heard of it. I'm not familiar with it, though. It, I is, it is in your district. It's April 13th. It's 500 laps around Lad Circle. <laughs> you can do it any way you'd like. Bring a whole team. Will you consider going to that this year okay april 13th damn it i won't you have to send somebody i will send somebody <laughs> so i will uh, uh, outside of everything else in the world that i do i've gotten fairly into fitness over the last few years uh. and i just signed up for a weekend long training out of town that weekend all right well maybe next year and if i don't end up going for life circumstances yeah absolutely cool is there anything else you wanted to make sure folks heard no, this is a lot of fun. And I've listened to some of your other podcasts. I very much enjoyed listening to Angelita to take questions at your uh, your happy hour. And just uh, I'm looking forward to uh, being at one of those. I'll actually put voice to that phone number that I mentioned, 971-219-5429. It's also on my website, which is cornetforportland.com. I never remember to say that, so I'm glad I did for once. But uh, if anyone wants to call me out, on any of my answers today, um, call me, text me, or if there's anything value you think I should know, I hope folks will uh, hope folks will get in touch. And um, if anyone wants to talk further, I, I say let's go on a ride. Let's go on a ride meeting. Cool, sounds so. good. And will you be able to come to happy hour next week? I will. Okay, everybody, January twenty fourth, bike happy hour, Ankeny Tap. Come and meet Jesse. Shake his hand, ask him your questions, bend his ear. Jesse Cornett, District 3 City Council candidate. Thanks so much for coming by. Thanks for having this. Enjoying it. Thank you. That was Portland City Council candidate for District 3, Jesse Cornett. Thanks again for listening. Really appreciate all of your support. If you are not a paid subscriber of Bike Portland yet, please become one today at bikeportland.org support uh, and find out how you can 
be a part of what we're doing here and pay a little bit in to keep it thriving and surviving. I also want to thank Brock Didis of Sprocket Podcast fame for our wonderful new theme music. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, we'll see you in the streets. 